I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Rebel Radio is brought to you by Finn.com. And doesn't it feel like there's always just too much to do between work and life and fun and staying healthy, all that stuff? Well, Finn might be the solution for you. It's your virtual assistant that you can have do all of the mundane tasks that you don't want to do or don't really have time to do. So you can spend your time doing the important stuff. I use it to book travel have them confirm appointments for me. I have them research upcoming guests for, uh, for the show. You can, you can have them buy gifts. They can make you a website. You can sync your calendars and your email, and uh, they take care of all of that for you. What I love most about it, it's really easy to access. You can call them on the phone, send them an email, use the mobile app, the website, uh, whatever's most convenient for you. And because you support this show, I'm about to support you. Go to finn.com slash rebel and you can try out Finn for free just because you're a listener to Rebel Radio. Finn.com slash rebel for a free trial. Finn.com slash rebel. Hi, this is BT Wolf talking on Rebel Radio with Josh Levine. Fuck you, Josh. What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up, what up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh-huh. Rebel Radio is going down. Would you say Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I talk to the Rebels that are shaping youth culture. We find out how they do it, why they do it, and what you can do to get a little piece of the pie for yourself. We're also the only show to bring you new music every week from our friends over at EDM.com. I'm your host, Josh Levine, and my guest today is the very talented BD Wolf. I met BD earlier this year at the LA Times Festival of Books and then ran into her again at the Collision Conference. She is a busy, busy woman. She's a um, really talented singer-songwriter. She has a unique and innovative approach to releasing her music, everything from live streaming her album from the world's most silent room to partnering with a legendary British tailor to stitch her music into a jacket. Uh, Lots of other great stories about her vision for 
um, not not so much just promoting her music, but but showing people how music can affect them and, and how it can really touch you in, in different ways than you might be expecting. Great stories coming up from Beatty Wolf right after our EDM.com track of the week. EDM.com track of the week. That was Aaron H and Aaron with Horizon. Get over to EDM.com, check out new music, and let's get into the interview with BD Wolf. So at this point, you're a, you're a game changer, according to, uh, I don't know, the press on you is pretty spectacular. Um, I think Wired said you're one of 12 people changing the world. There's only, apparently there's only 11 others. Um, so I want to talk about how we got to this point. Mm. And so you were telling me earlier about getting into music as a kid. How did that start for you? I always loved storytelling. Um, you know, from a very young age, the, the sort of mode that I operated through was storytelling. So, you know, writing like plays getting my dad to transcribe these stories which apparently I did from like age three and I'm sure he found incredibly tedious <laughs> and um and just you know being fascinated with imagination and then realizing that I could put my stories to music and you had you know the power of words and and poetry combined with the power of melody and suddenly those stories could touch more people and you know um, move people in different ways and at the same time that I kind of started writing songs which was about seven or eight um, I discovered my parents record collection and I just saw these records as musical books that I could open up what, and what, tell me what was one of the records one of the records, um, Some Girls okay. <laughs> and Abbey Road. Yeah. Um, the Who, my, uh, it was live, my generation, in this paper cover. Even though I don't like The Who, I, like, I hate to admit it, but it's one band that I've just never been able to really get on board with. Um, and, you know, Donny Hathaway, live mm. in 71. This is the ghetto. Showing up now. Mm -hmm. 
many and I just I really did just think of them as these yeah musical books that you could read like a story with you know the liner notes and the lyrics and the artwork providing this amazing backdrop for the music and through that album you could enter into the the world of the artist and the and the story of the record and it was like a gateway you know onto that world and I remember sitting there like eight you know age eight just pouring through these records and thinking oh what worlds can I create for my albums Mm. um and so that tangibility that sense of ceremony like putting on the needle having the headspace that feeling of the album telling a story it it was all so much part of the music for me it was all kind of interlinked and when it was time for my you know first album to be released a number of years later i couldn't accept that it would just be this digital download it was just <laughs> like it was actually sure. just not an option and like even after records you know i'd spent all my money growing up on cds tapes you know i just what's what's the first thing you went out and bought for yourself the first thing was blood sugar sex magic i was i i didn't actually buy it because i wasn't allowed to so i'd heard it i was in this little fisherman village in portugal with you know my mom and brother and these crazy guys who we were staying with would just be playing it they had a bar and a restaurant and Mm. um they were just playing it on repeat and you know I remember going down and like what you know one of them just singing the whole like suck my kiss like all these like pretty inappropriate gestures but it was all very it was all very on the line of actually just being good crazy rather than bad crazy and I just remember hearing it and thinking this is the coolest thing I've ever heard and I want to make a record and it just kind of set my world on fire and like we went back to London and my mom was like you cannot buy that record like it's so inappropriate you shouldn't have even heard it and um and I found a friend's brother to go and buy it for me um because obviously yeah it was parent uh mm-hmm. advisory and um hid it from my mom and would hide in my room when she was like out and just listen to it over and over and I wrote out all the lyrics which is kind of crazy because the lyrics were in the album (laughs) yeah Yeah. but like I was so obsessed with it I just wanted to know every word and so I can still sing the whole thing like as soon as power of equality comes on until like so psycho sexy and then you have that weird outro like I every word of that album and it was such an album that you couldn't listen to like you couldn't put on, you know, Breaking the Girl or whatever without going through track one and two. It was this whole journey and story and the segues were super amazing. And yeah, I just remember like just falling in love with it so mm. much. That's so cool. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think that's a, uh, it's interesting to hear you say that because, um, you know, generationally, we think that this, that's something that people older than you mm. would do, would like really spend time with the music and, and, you know, dig into the lyrics and have that complete experience. But, you know, I, I think that is, I don't know if kids are doing that now, or even, I mean, they, they'd have to work a lot harder to find that stuff. Yeah. But, um, but I think, you know, I think not doing it, they're missing out. Mm. So, 
at what point did you start thinking of music as a career? I don't think I, I don't think it was ever thinking about it as a career. I think I just knew I had to do music. It, it didn't feel like an option, you know, and I remember having arguments with my dad where, you know, he was like, you're never going to make any money and you should go and do, I think he even said PR, which is just so weird coming from him. Like, it's just not even something he would say. Mm. Um, and yeah, it was just this thing where it just, it really wasn't a choice. It was, I just had to do it. It was what I felt I'd been put here to do. And it was the thing I cared about the most. Um, and you know the interesting thing is obviously I've now like I guess you know the the I'm I am a musician but I'm also you know kind of an artist in a wider sense I guess because of the ways that I've presented the albums but everything about the tech the art the design you know all the other stuff that I do that feels kind of out there and you know pretty wild it's all about creating a space for an album to be heard in this magical way like mm. that's what it's all about it's like how do you create a vinyl experience for today in a way that people haven't seen before where suddenly they're like transfixed by this musical jacket or deck of cards or 3D vinyl for the phone or space beam or whatever it is and it reminds them of how much they just love music because you know that something's triggered this this thinking of oh this is not just your regular you know stream that you have on in the background this sure. is something else so so the career of being a musician has definitely been broadened by you know the other things I've brought into the mix but all of those things that I've brought into the mix are actually about pointing back to the music. So was there something or someone that shifted you in that direction? I want to talk about some of the stuff you've mm. done, the deck of cards and all the crazy yeah. uh, ways that you've brought your music to the world. But was that, were you thinking that way from the beginning or was there something that shifted to make you think differently about how to release your music? I think I I think when you hit an obstacle, that's when you know you're actually blessed in many ways because that's when you really get creative. Um, so what, what was the obstacle? The obstacle was realizing that albums, tangible albums, were not relevant anymore. Yeah. And for me, that just it, it just wasn't going to be okay. So were you trying to? Were you going down that traditional path, trying to get signed and make make you know? traditional albums and no, no I was not like and I had you know in the early days particularly I had a lot of you know f pretty flattering offers and I would sit in offices and like look around and see these huge pop stars on the walls and think where am I in where am I fitting in with that mm. you know and then numerous conversations of like okay so we're going to put you with this producer and drop the band and you know and I'd just be like but have you listened to my music like this is you know it's like some electro producer and I'm making like you know Leonard Cohen Elliot Smith kind of pretty 
you know, pretty raw acoustic music. And, and at that point, it was, I think it was something that I could just never even compromise the integrity of even like 5%. It was like, if I'm doing music, I want to believe everything I'm singing, every note that I'm making, everything I, I'm creating, I, I have to stand behind. And otherwise, I would really rather do anything else. Like, I couldn't do it and not have that total like focus on just it being true and real um so you know there were a lot of things i i turned down and then i was realizing that i wanted to put it out my the record out myself and i didn't want it to be just a digital download and i was thinking about everything like music boxes like what if you know you wound it up and then you had this the box opened and there was kind of a little like silhouette of me even you know, just something really basic and the record played and then I'm like yeah but then the sound quality would be shit and, mm-hmm. and the production production you know yeah. would cost just it would be insane yeah, sure. and so it was just I was really trying to figure out what it could be and I had a conversation I'd actually weirdly just come to LA for the first time as you know on, uh, like a visiting and I had a conversation with this design company, friends, you know, who I and actually ended up doing raw space with. They did all the animation and AR mm. for that, called Design.io. And I was just saying to them, look, if I gave you the, like, you know, posed the question of, like, how could you put a record on a phone? Like, everyone is on their phone now, but how could you have a sort of tangible vinyl experience on your phone? Mm-hmm. Um, and we just had this conversation and sort of brainstormed. Um, and, you know, they'd actually just come across this product uh, that was at a, a tech expo called the Palm Top Theater, which had never been used before, had literally just come out. It's this Japanese design that converted your phone into a mini theater for the palm of your hand. And so we were like, okay, well, if you could have a vinyl app, you know, with the, the liner notes and the um, lyrics and the artwork and the music in this way that really did feel kind of nostalgic, but then you could slot your phone into this little Japanese device and suddenly you could watch this performance like no one had seen before mm. and your phone was transformed into this magical viewing platform. Um, that would be pretty cool. And, you know, so then... I pitched the, the, the story or the idea to GQ or somehow they'd heard about it and they were like okay we're going to premiere this like we're going to you know give it this feature in the magazine and iPad and online and and then the head of apps for Apple UK and Europe wanted to meet I didn't at this point I was like I don't even know if we can make this work <laughs> and like it was such it was so by the skin of you know my pants because I was like promising yeah yeah that's great you know it will need this amount of you know or like leave this space for it because it will be a Mm -hmm. real Mm in-depth piece and and actually I'd gone into the meeting with the apps guy having not got the beta version until two minutes before and I didn't want to cancel the meeting because I knew I wouldn't be able to see it here it was in you know it was available for like one day sure. um, in those two weeks and so actually as I was showing him it was the first time I'd seen it and I was pretending like yeah you know this is how it works like super super slick um, so everything was just a lot of blind 
faith in the beginning that it would work out and if it didn't work out it didn't matter because it didn't exist beforehand so like what are you going to lose and it was just so lucky that it did and it you know it it worked it didn't just work it worked brilliantly you know Mm -hmm. and and the response to it was amazing people were just totally like transfixed and and it's weird because I still sometimes show people that first record um, now and think you know they'll be like rolling their eyes because it's so out of date and the number of people that are like why you know you should release this again now because this it was so ahead of its time but it was never about figuring out what the format was it was about asking the question and it was about exploring potential between the digital and tangible that people weren't thinking about it wasn't saying yeah this is now going to be the new cd or vinyl um so the response from the first record you know which was 2011-12 like that was what made me feel like there's more to explore here and you know this this is there's like deeper to go with this intention and this idea Turn out the lights, come over here Don't you wanna see what it looks like in darkness? And close all the windows, shut the door Don't you wanna hear what it sounds like in silence? And hold out your hand and turn it round Don't you wanna feel what it feels like to touch you? What did you learn from that experience? I learned that it's we're actually at our most creative when we're out of our depths, you know, mm. a little bit. And and I think when you have I think that, you know, when you're creating something that really hasn't been created before and that whole thing of, you know, the fear of failure there's something really amazing about when failure is such a huge part of it, like when you really think every day it's probably not going to work, then you stop being afraid of failure because because you're living with it and you're like, yeah, it probably won't work. Um, but because of that, you're braver and you're more committed and you and the clarity of your focus becomes I think even more enhanced because it's like it's like when you're scared suddenly you your senses are heightened you know so I think that's something I really learned is just it you know is actually just to embrace that embrace that feeling of just like falling you know well it runs I mean I, I get it and at the same time it runs so counter to um you know what I think in the, is so common in the tech world and the in entertainment, which is this hubris that, like, mm. of course we're going to succeed, right? Like every asshole with a business plan and an app mm. is so sure that his that he's going to have the next unicorn. Yeah. And they're all wrong, except for three people, right? Yeah. And so, you know, what you're talking about is really the opposite: is that like, let's go in and fail. And, and I think a lot of people, when faced with probable failure, mm. will, that's the time they'll give up. 
So I'm curious, what makes you not give up? I've, I've always had a very weird thing where if someone gives me a compliment, like I'd remember this when I was younger, if someone like, say I was playing a song and someone said, oh, it sounds really great, I would screw up. Like I would always screw up. Whereas if someone was like, you can't do it, like this isn't going to work, I would become so determined that that really? was it. <laughs> so I think I've always been motivated by, not by proving people wrong, but by sort of not being complacent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when, when you're not complacent and, you know, you really do think that sort of you're, you, you could just fall on your face, I don't know, I just think you become, I think that we are actually using probably so much less of our potential than we really could be, you know, and you read these stories of like how, you know, a woman in a tiny village in Italy saw a kid under, a, you know, the wheel of a car and yeah, she was yeah. able to lift the car, like the people do these extraordinary feats when they're faced with no other options, you know. So I wonder... You know, you mentioned all those albums at the beginning of this conversation mm. that inspired you. Every one of those guys lost the plot somewhere along the way, right? And, and they stopped, stopped innovating or stopped mm. maybe connecting with the why. I don't know. What's, but I, I'm curious why you think that happens. You know, in the history of popular music... Mm. It's, uh, I've, I've played this game with friends. It's almost impossible to find anyone who's stayed at the top of their creative game for more than 10 years. Yeah, um, I'm trying to, and now I'm doing maths. <laughs> yeah, yeah prove me wrong about that. I um, there's a no, couple. Yeah. There's a couple, but not many. I mean, I would say, I would say if Elliot Smith hadn't died, I think he would. You know, I really, I really believed in his integrity and his trueness, and you know, I think he was pretty unwavering when it came to just being an artist and just being real and doing what he loved, and not, you know, getting sidetracked with any of the other crap. Okay. Cool. <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I but, hear you. know, you. when we talk about the Stones, the Beatles, yeah. the uh, Chili Peppers, right? Mm. It's Leonard Cohen was pretty consistent, as per my cat. Okay, fair enough. Um, but it's really rare. Yeah. You know, that, that any, and, and I think maybe, you know, Leonard Cohen and Elliot Smith are great artists. They're not successful at the level the Rolling Stones yeah. or you know yeah. I mean no, nobody was so yeah. you know but um, I know that you know I'm asking you to guess but why, why do you think that is? I think um, so it's like it's like Wes Anderson I mean you know he and you see it in films a lot you see it with records a lot you know there's this like great you know you have the early stuff which is kind of rough around the edges yeah but you can see that if it just got polished a little bit there's like this beautiful jewel and then you have this the you know the kind of point at the the seesaw where it's like right in the middle 
and they've got a bit of money and they've got some investment and they can kind of suddenly go from like totally DIY or more DIY to then like, oh, I can execute this because now there's the really? resource. Yeah, Michael yeah, Jackson's exactly. Coming, right? And th- and that's like the sweet spot, you know, like whether it's Rushmore or the Royal Tannerals or something. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the money starts pouring in and it's like there's no longer the blank space. There's no longer that white piece of paper of like, oh, I have this space and what can I pull into it? Because you've got all this stuff that's there yeah. that's just sitting there, like, but you can use, you know... Bruce Willis for the cameo and you can have this and you can do and you can 3D print you know gold bubbles out of your Tesla car or whatever crap it is and as soon as you get to that point I think it's incredibly difficult to be creative because you no longer have limitations it's like Matisse said you know when when he was confined to his wheelchair like that was when he was the most creative because he had to do these pictures with a with a pole that he then attached you know um, tools to and mm. he'd make these these paintings and <clears throat> for him it was having those limits um, that actually made him focus and made him super creative yeah. rather than just having everything be an option sure. um, so I think and I you know and I think it's not it's very difficult to maintain a feeling of being grounded and a feeling of humility and a, and a feeling of realizing that as quickly as it's you, it's some, it could be someone else. You know, sure. I think it's very easy to get swept up in the, that like God complex. So how does that apply to you when you, when you have a bunch of smart magazines and, mm. and people telling you how brilliant you are? I don't think I do it. I don't. I, it's not that I don't think. I don't do it for that. You know, I do it because I really believe that if I can change even an, an aota of how people think about music or how they appreciate it or how they realize that it goes way beyond entertainment and it's something core to our humanity, like that is kind of what I want to do and that's the intention and you know in the same way that like so you know Jim Henson is a big hero of mine and I remember reading that he said you know from when he was about eight like he realized he just wanted to leave the world a little better for him having been here and it sounds very it can sound kind of evangelical but that is truly it's truly what I want to do and it's and it's really the it's really what drives everything um so and also I never believe it you know because I think I have some sort of complex where it's never enough you know and it's not for not on a not on a success monetary not not on the puff stuff none of that it's mm-hmm. not that it's never enough from that perspective but I know that I have to do more it's like this feeling that yeah but then you know I st- it's just this insatiable feeling and you know I'm sure some psychiatrist would relate it back to like <laughs> feeling that my father never saw what I did or you know or whatever yeah I'm sure, you know sure. and that connection is 
probably likely to be made. But um, no, I just think it's the, I just think it's that, you know, time on this earth can feel very long or it can feel very short. And I always felt like I, there's just a lot to do. Mm. So is that why you, um, every, every new project comes out in a different way, right? Well, and every but every project has was born entirely of inspira- from inspiration, and never did I go into like I didn't enter the Bell Labs Anna Kirk chamber thinking I was I needed to create a new record and stage it from there. I didn't go into Montague Square thinking I was going to make a musical jacket and so yeah, explain what those are because. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm, you know, I'm sure our listeners don't necessarily know, and and I read about it, and I don't still fully don't understand. No. So, so yeah, the first album had had happened. That was 2012, and um, and then actually I was working on this music and dementia project for a number of years, um, right. sort of in between album one and two, and that was entirely philanthropic. Um, a study, you know, looking at how music can help people with dementia, but specifically, this study focused on music that people had never heard before. So, um, it was looking at songs that, you know, m- music people were, those patients were literally hearing for the first time, and it wasn't triggering memory, and it wasn't, you know, working in the way that a lot of um, a lot of research has actually sort of proved that you know if a song triggers memory you can bring someone back and yeah. but this was the first study to look at music apart from memory and that's kind of a whole other story but it went on to you know it was um, then picked up by Stanford and Oxford and the American Alzheimer's Association and, and a couple of months ago it was read at the House of Lords in the UK as part of a, a Report um, to get music in all care homes in in the UK by 2020. Mm. So, I was doing that. That was where my head was at. And the one thing that was fascinating—it wasn't the only thing—but there was this belief going into care homes that if you had a lot of stimuli uh, around, you know, the patients, that something would trigger, you know, something, and that and more was better than less. Um, and so you'd have radio and television and, you know, someone, you know, telling a story or whatever. And actually it was the opposite. It was when you switched everything off and you had, you know, a focused performance or, or a carer was giving a resident a deep hand massage. And that was when you saw the most incredible, you know, reawakenings. And honestly, after doing that that project which is still ongoing you know having seen the reactions to music that i saw which was so incredible and moving and important you know where for example one guy david whose family had stopped visiting him um and it, you know he was virtually catatonic um, and the carers just wanted one sign of engagement, like a smile that they could send to the family, say mm. he's still here. Within the first 10 seconds of the first song, having been totally unshakable, 
as soon as the music started, his eyes were wide, his arm was moving in perfect time to this opening. And he later got up in a, a later song in the set and everyone was like, what's happening, what's he doing? And he actually was getting up to dance with one of the carers. And at that point, I was like, I cannot watch this because I'm going to mess up this song by like... Sure. But, you know, you see that and you're thinking, <laughs> okay, music is doing something that nothing else can do in that those extreme conditions. And it sort of trickles down to make you realize if it's doing that in the most extreme conditions, what's it doing to us just on a regular level, yeah. you know, and, and why are we thinking of it differently? Uh, you know, it's not until the point that we're, we're disconnected that we suddenly realize that music has this value. Hey, if you're enjoying this one, let's go back in the Rebel Radio archives. Check out my interview with Riva DeVito, great kind of neo-soul singer. Um, she's got some great stories about how she started out by managing herself and what she learned going through that process. And uh, also about how she kind of builds her team and really takes care of them the same way they take care of her. Good stuff with Riva DeVito. I don't, I really try to steer away from like, hey, this is my career. Um, because I'm a firm believer that like it's art is like, it's like this sort of sacred thing. Mm -hmm. It's like a butterfly that like, you, you don't want to catch it. You know, you just kind of want to follow it around. That was where my head was at, and I, you know, wasn't thinking about an album, wasn't thinking about anything particularly, and happened to meet this tailor at the Royal Albert Hall who dressed Bowie, Hendrix, Jagger in the 60s, and he said, you know, and we knew of one another, um, and we'd been kind of thinking of doing some, a project together, uh, but he, he was like, oh, I've moved into the first home of Yoko and Lennon, do you want to come over, you know, for, for tea? And being a big Lennon fan, I was like, yeah. You know, so I go over to this nondescript flat. It has a Lennon plaque, you know, on the front of it, but otherwise just looks like a regular flat in Marlborough. And go into this living room, and I'm waiting for my tea, because <laughs> it's Britain, and there's this series of black and white pictures behind me, and I'm like, oh, that's Hendrix lying on the sofa with his records and that's McCartney with his guitar and that's Ringo with his drums and oh there's Yoko and Lennon like naked you know and this incredible like series of all these photos that had been taken in this flat but but literally also in this room that we were sitting in like the majority of them were just in this front room and the tailor comes back in and I'm like what is this place like <laughs> this is crazy and he starts telling me the history and he's like 50 years ago Ringo bought this flat because it was near Abbey Road and he was living here and he was also using it as his drumming rehearsal studio um, he then leased it to McCartney who wrote and recorded Eleanor Rigby in this room um, and then McCartney had his Zapple HQ out of here and he was recording William Burroughs and all these oh, beat wow. poets and then you know Hendrix flies over and needs somewhere to live and McCartney's like, oh, I'm moving out so, you know, you can come live here. So Hendrix moves in and he, you know, <coughs> is going out with, with 
the love of, of his life at the time and they have this terrible argument and she runs off and he writes and records The Wind Cries Mary in the same room. After all the jets are in the boxes And the clowns have all gone to bed You can hear happiness staggering on down the street Footprints dressed in red And the wind whispers he then gets evicted for whitewashing the walls when he's high on acid and Ringo's like, okay, you know, enough's enough. And, uh, and he moves out and Yoko and Lennon move in and that's their first home. That's where they do the Double Virgins cover and early naked campaigning. And as he was describing it, and this is just a snapshot, like this isn't even the whole thing, sure. but the, the feeling in that room was so incredible and I just had, it wasn't even goosebumps, I just felt like I was being electrified. Mm. And, and I, just, I just knew there was something we had to do. I was like, the, the, the house, if there's a way that we can tell the story of this house that is like this rare jewel, you know, the Gallaghers had tried to buy it and mm. turn it into a studio but failed. Like, it's this legend of Montague Square that so few people have ever been to. Like, if there's a way of telling its story, of telling the story of the tailor and actually weaving it in with, a, with the story of a record, like, how amazing would that be? And I'd had this loose idea in the back of my mind, and, but it wasn't fully formed. And literally two days later, I went to a, a book launch for a friend um, and met one artist who told me that she converted music into fabric. That was all she said, gave me her card. And I went away and I was like, this is it. We're gonna have this night, you know, we'll invite sort of the founding fathers of rock journalism who've been dying to come to this place. And like, mm. but also the tech guys, but have very intimate audience, record the music live in this room where all these incredible songs were written. Um, and have that re that recording with the resonance and the history and the audience be translated into a piece of fabric by this textiles designer where every thread is a note and uh, and that fabric will tell the story of this record and then that can be cut by the tailor who dressed Bowie, Hendrix and Jagger into a musical jacket and it will be one of one it will be like the album jacket reimagined mm. and you know, it will it will literally look at music as art. And I said to the tailor, like, soon, you know, the V&A is going to be calling up and the V&A Museum uh, will be calling up and asking to have the jacket featured in its collection. And like a week later, I got a call from the curators of the David Bowie Is show mm -hmm. saying, you know, we've heard about your <coughs> musical jacket and and could it be part of this exhibition and would you come and talk alongside Bowie's designer and do a performance and, and represent the future of music? And if I slip up, please be the rock that doesn't shake Don't you know we need somebody Just somebody to take our hand Need somebody, somebody who will understand.
it was crazy. It was nuts, you know. And this was not in no way part of any plan. It was so not a plan, mm -hmm. but it just happened with so much like fluidity and. You know, it was. It just had an energy of its own. I, like I, I'm, I tell you, and and at the same time, I was thinking, okay, I don't just want the, you know, I want to create something that everyone can experience, like the app, you know, like the 3D yeah. app, and not just have it be confined to if someone walks into a museum where the jacket's being shown. So I was having a meeting with the CEO of this printing company called Moo. And uh, they were, and he was telling me about these NFC enabled business cards, which were literally about to be launched. He was very excited. Um, and then separately, he showed me this collection box that they designed for Art, Art Basel, where um, you know it's this beautiful box. You opened it up. There were ten slides, which each corresponded to a painting from the collection, with the art and the information on the back. And I didn't realize that they were too separate conversations I thought well why wouldn't you create like a beautiful tangible object to me it just looked like a mini box set of vinyl so I was mm -hmm. like why wouldn't you create a mini box set of vinyl that has NFC where every slide or card is a track off the record and you have the lyrics and the artwork on the on those you know on each um, card you can then tap it to your phone and pull up the music video and all of this other content and the obviously the song um, in this instantaneous way, um, and so you know the album was also released as as the first you know deck of cards, mm -hmm. which um, you know then it was kind of two funny stories because um, I was asked to present my work at Apple's Cupertino Town Hall Theatre and. Um, and literally Apple were about to unlock NFC at any point. Like every other phone, every phone has right. NFC, yeah, yeah. but it was sort of, you know, it was imminent that Apple would unlock it and then the deck would be perfect <laughs> and they hadn't. And I was doing this talk, you know, in the famous Steve Jobs theater mm -hmm. and to their VPs and, and various other people. And I said, look, you know, the deck needs NFC. So, shall I just skip this part of the presentation? And they were like, no, this idea is amazing. You have to show it. So for five minutes, there was, and it wasn't even like a Google Pixel. It was like the most, it was the most hideous, like Microsoft phone <laughs> was doing this demo of the deck, like on the theater screen. And I amazing. found out afterwards from like the VP of software, he was like, I've been here for 20 years and I've yeah, never yeah. seen anyone be able to do a non-Apple sure. demo and so it was kind of funny um, but you know the deck like we're actually for the for the V&A show like the art centre in Pasadena they're designing the dean of the art centre is gonna have each card designed by a different top international designer yeah. um, for the raw space deck you know so this was launched with the Montague Square album but now we'll be doing you know a second version of oh, it cool. um, and it's it, again it's one of those things where you know actually Leonard Cohen's uh, uh, Leonard Cohen and his team wanted to release um, You Want It Darker yeah. on the, uh, as an album deck when he saw it because it's like this is amazing um, so it is something that again has endured you know it wasn't just a, 
a sort of momentary thing that was kind of relevant at the time mm -hmm. because it wasn't dependent on the tech it was dependent on the idea you know yeah. um, so that was Montague Square <laughs> that's amazing um, typically I think if you're managing a music career mm. You know, you're thinking about what's going to sell the most tickets or the most albums or the most streams, as we were talking about before, or whatever. And so, what's your what what's what drives these decisions for you? I know you kind of, you talked about mm. the, the why, but how do you put those through a business lens? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, obviously with Raw Space, which was the last record, it was the, you know, and working with Bell Labs and having them essentially sponsor it, which is so rare, you know, the, in terms of without going into anything, you know, what what they gave as support for the record and the execution of that vision, sure. you would never be able to do with any label. I right. mean, like any, even if yeah, you yeah, were like the biggest artist, they just wouldn't want to do that and they wouldn't yeah. want to put the money into because it. Because it doesn't scale. So I think that, I kind of think that by doing great stuff and people wanting to work with you, you actually create other revenue streams. Mm -hmm. This is <laughs> me, you know, it's always out of my comfort zone to say that, not to say that, but to even think like that because I am so driven by what inspires me and what I think will inspire other people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, having crossed over from not just being a musician, but being a speaker and, you know, an innovator, you do end up actually going into spaces that traditional musicians wouldn't, you yeah. know, whether it's podcasts or talks or mm -hmm. um, you know special kind of openings um, or the ability to be able to perform and then speak and you know and and kind of even then do uh, an interactive demo of something to inspire you know which I've done for pretty much all of the streaming services sure. I've gone into Beats and Apple Music and um, Amazon and whoever else and like presented the work that I've been doing as a way of them trying to be more innovative so mm -hmm. it's kind of I don't know I just think that you know I just know that I have to I know that I have to do it and I feel with every project it's got more not refined but it's like you know raw space was definitely the best execution of the vision to make an album feel like it was coming to life around you. Did they, did you still have that sense of not knowing if it was going to work? Oh, totally. I mean, so with, you know, with Raw Space, it was the, and, you know, World's First is such an, a dickish thing to say, but, like, it, as with the other formats, which all have been, but with, with Raw Space, it was so much so because, you know, it was this live 360 video on YouTube which hadn't been done before and it was only because I'd sent a description of the the vision to Bell Labs and they'd shared it with Eric Schmidt and he'd seen it and he was like this is the coolest thing YouTube has to be compatible for this so they'd ended up giving us all this 
bandwidth and like yeah. mucking around in the back end to like literally make raw space to create a platform that could support raw space so it was the first live 360 video but then it was totally like the first ever live 360 and, and AR you know so that as mm -hmm. the record was playing in the Bell Labs anechoic chamber as this ultimate physical anti-stream you know from the world's quietest room with with this amazing sense of ceremony and you know focus on the music because nothing could penetrate it was the room where Helen Keller said it's the first time she'd experienced real silence so you've got this record player like playing the music in this really focused way and you know people are logging in via the 360 cameras and they can't shuffle they can't fast forward mm -hmm. wherever the record is in that cycle that's what they're hearing um, but then using live augmented reality as the record is playing the lyrics are streaming out of the vinyl the artwork is surrounding you and coming to life and suddenly you know the walls have, of the chamber have dissolved and you're in this beautiful Salvador Dali style desert that seems to go on forever you know watching this Yakometi character um, you know sort of hanging himself mm. as a more cheery <laughs> moment in the record but it was this real feeling of the album, of the visuals literally kind of, uh, you know, exploding from, the, from this real physical vinyl and having the animations blend seamlessly with this real room so that you couldn't see what was room and what was, you know, augmented mm -hmm. and just feeling as if you as the listener were, you know, were just stepping into your favorite album. And you know every song was hard coded but it was also part generative so the fact that you know you were streaming 4k video and then overlaying this ar which was directly responding to the music in that moment so like if the needle skipped the music the animations would skip yeah. it was totally ahead of its time yeah. um and so with that you know every day it was like is this even you know even five minutes before it was launched we were like how is this even going to work and we had to have backup turntables you know on standby and and records because obviously they're not meant to be played 24 hours for a week and you right. know and at one point the whole thing the ozo output like collapsed and you just had this matrix screen on YouTube, which people were watching, but it was real, you know, yeah, it sure. was happening. Yeah, it's the imperfections. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, that was. So, so I imagine now, you know, you've had so much press and you've done these, you know, incredible projects. Um, I imagine now you're hearing from brands and you're hearing from, you know, as you mentioned, all the streaming platforms mm. and. Um, I guess I have two questions. One, do you think about, I imagine you must have thought about sort of doing this for other artists besides yourself. No. No. <laughs> I've, okay. I have been asked. Yeah. Um, I, unless it's someone I, look, if it's like, if it's Elliot Smith, if it's Leonard Cohen and they're like, hey, I have this idea and would you help me out with it? You know, yes, because I, 
unfortunately both those people aren't around anymore right. but you know if it was something that was driven by uh-huh. love and and appreciation and connect and being on the same page but the reason the things work is because they're so uniquely kind of devised by me for me with you yeah. know without making it an not an ego thing at all, but it's like, that's what's genuine about it. That's what's authentic about it. Well, I think what's interesting is, you know, typically in the record business, there's an order to things, mm. right? And so the songwriting starts first and then, the, and then the recording, and then you have a finished record, and then the marketing people get involved, and they start to think about how are we going to bring this record to the world? Yeah. And it sounds like that doesn't work for what you do, right? That the that those things become intertwined and maybe kind of happen overlapping. Yeah. Um, so I guess my other question though was, how do you, how are you now deciding what to do, right? If, if you've got these uh, more resources at your disposal and you know, as I said, I'm sure, I'm sure brands, you know, read about the last thing you did and want to have a chat about the next thing or yeah. whatever. So how do you, how are you deciding what to say yes to or no to? Just going back to that thing, is it coming from the outside or is it coming from the inside? Is someone saying, hey, we have this great, you know, these great ambisonic headphones that you know you could do this thing and people could hear it like this and if it's from that reason from that kind of perspective then it's not interesting to me if you know like say with raw space you know i i had been thinking about what the anti-stream would look like like okay this is now streaming the first two albums were response to digital downloads being kind of the mode of listening and now we're in the streaming world, so what is the opposite of what is currently being offered? Mm-hmm. And I just happened to be at Bell Labs at that time and walked into this chamber that I was told I could stay in for 10 minutes and then I would freak out because the silence is so profound. Mm. And instead I thought, this is, apart from Montague Square, this is my favorite place in the world. Like, how, long, how long did you stay in? Well, the first time, two hours. But wow. since then, I've spent over 100 hours in there. And I wouldn't find it disconcerting. I found it like so... It was like being retuned, you know, and, and realizing that that silence, when you're there in that, you know, that silence, if you think about the silence being between the notes... Um, you know, and you play music in there, like the silence is so deep that, the, and the music is kind of this tiny sinuous thread and it's just, it is like the rawest sound. It's literally hearing sound without, you know, the opposite of auto-tune, you know, yeah. EQ, all of that stuff. This is like the purest, rawest sound. So, so what does it mean to be silent like that? I think, like we're like we're in, I mean obviously here we can hear the the wind a little bit yeah. and the fan or whatever um, but you know we've been in recording studios that we tend to think of as mm. silent if they're not 
if there's no music playing. So like, how is that room different? Exactly. So what you said about we think of it as silent if there isn't music playing. Music has become so part of the noise now. You know, it's always on in the background. It's always kind of we do stuff and music is playing, you know, rather than we sit and we listen to music. And so being in that room reminded me of all the noise and how music was part of the noise and how it needed to be taken out of being part of the noise and staged in this truly ceremonial way, which was the the anti-stream. But I think it also, being in that silence, it makes you realize, like, this silence is so incredible, you know, is what I'm going to say or what I'm going to make or play worth breaking the silence for? Yeah. And it makes you super aware of of just, if you're going to break the silence, make it worth it. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> so just to go, you know, go back to your question about the... The, you know the brand thing mm-hmm. I think um, I just like I honestly I wish I could say I have done it but I've honestly never done anything based on someone calling up and saying hey we have this stuff you know what do you think yeah. you know could I do it in theory if it was a good fit and, and I liked what they were doing and it was kind of a, it had its place yeah but like so far for every every project it's been born out of you know exploring that idea of what an a vinyl experience could be today and then literally looking around me and being like this room this anti-echo chamber is the perfect place for this anti-stream and how we get you know how is it gonna be built from beyond that it's never been a case of like you know oh so we've got this ozo camera what could you do with it you know so basically you're saying don't pay you any compliments and don't <laughs> pitch you any ideas. That's, that sounds like... It sounds like <laughs> that's what I'm getting so far. Yeah, exactly. I Yeah, just, you know, tell me... Just tell you you can't do it. <laughs> yeah. And, and then be quiet. And create an amazing space. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you know, I... Lock you in a silent room. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be silent. It can be a room where some of the greatest rock songs were written as well. Okay. All right. Get it. What are you going to do next? Um, make some music. Yeah? Yeah. So, you know, I have the v show, Victor and Albert show, coming up in uh, September. Okay that's going to be an exhibition of all the albums and all the designs and and it's huge this gallery space is it's intimidatingly large um and the museum has only done this for for two other musicians bowie and pink floyd um so yeah so like with that the thing that's wonderful is it kind of is this it's the first time all the albums will be presented alongside each other, so the dots will finally connect. People will realize that a musical jacket and a deck of cards and a 3D vinyl and a space chamber are all essentially the same thing. Um, and it will be almost like 
not like the end of a chapter at all, but it will feel like, you know, a demarcation of, of what I've done mm-hmm. and kind of be put into that, you know, into that context, I guess. Um, and really after that, I mean, you know, there are always things, I have <laughs> multiple things I'm thinking about right now in terms of what could be really incredible. Sure. But I also just want to, I just want to give, sometimes I think maybe I need to, if it, 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 it is all truly about the album, but you know, pulling off these projects are huge feats and they take a lot of time. And part of me is just like, I just want to maybe spend that time just on the music. Mm. Um, so there are a few very exciting things coming up on that. Okay. Yeah. I read something you said that you mentioned your goal is to open people's eyes to what music can do. You talked about that a little bit in the in the in the uh, case of dementia, mm. but wh- what do you think music can do? I think music is magic. Um, I think music can remind us on the deepest level of of why we're here, of our humanity, of our empathy, you know, our sense of self um and you know just on a neurological level not to bring science into this but you know to quote oliver Sacks, who inspired the whole music and dementia project music imprints itself deeper on the brain than any other human experience Mm. and that's just on a brain level so you know in that way it's you know it is so fundamental to our well-being and I think you know you know it everyone knows it like everyone when you talk to them about music you know and their music the music that really like sets their world on fire like they'll be able to tell you amazing things they've seen or you know how they've been like sure. blind with rage in a you know like a like traffic jam on the 101 and everyone it's super stressful and it's like a black cloud descends and then a song will come on and it doesn't have to be something they know and it can just change their whole you know physicality and their and just how they feel you know tell, tell me a song that's done that for you david bowie and tina turner singing tonight which was a song that he wrote with uh iggy pop people like it okay a lot of people think it's very cheesy um but there's a kind of a funny story where i had i was hosting the um live stream and and stage for pandora at south by southwest two years ago and i'd been talking for i don't know how many hours and i was so exhausted and um it was the following day and i was at this amazon barbecue because um, I've done a, you know, a couple of things with the music guys there and, and I literally wanted to avoid everyone and just like hide under in the bush and so I was like sitting under these trees like totally 
antisocial and this guy came over and we started chatting and um and we somehow got onto our desert island discs which are the eight tracks that you take to a desert island you know very old british radio show sure and i figured i have them all figured out and um and I like from the initial introduction, I was like, "Oh, this guy does, you know, admin for Amazon, you know, um, not he wasn't on the music side." Mm. But I was like, "He has really good taste in music." And we and I got to this David Bowie track, and he was like, "Oh my God, that's my favorite Bowie song!" And everyone always argue with me, and it's so good. And um, and yeah, and we kind of carried on, and, and then he was like, God, this conversation is reminding me of when I used to review albums for a living, and I was like, oh yeah, you know, thinking that it was some little blog he had on the side. And, um, and after a couple of hours, we were like, okay, we've got to go, like, <laughs> you've got to go try and chat to other people. And I left, and the music guys I know there came up, and they were like, how do you know Nathan Brackett? Like, he's our new boss. And um, and so Nathan had been the executive editor for Rolling Stone for like oh, twenty wow. years. Oh, <laughs> and and um, but so <laughs> what's kind of sweet is just that that but like we both love that Bowie song, and everyone would always tell me how cheesy it was, and I think would also tell him. But you should definitely listen to it because okay. it's super good. All right. So I have a little lightning round that we like to okay. end with. Tell me one decision that's changed your life forever. Oh man, this is when I get I get lost for words. Um, that's why we'll cut out the yeah. <laughs> um, one decision: not becoming an antiquarian bookseller like my father. That's an exciting profession, I'm, I'm sure. Yep. Complete the sentence. I don't have talent, I have blank. Determination. So if I worked for you, what's something I would hear you say over and over? The eye of the farmer fattens the pig. Holy shit. What does that mean? So it's, my dad used to say it when I was a kid and it didn't make any sense. <laughs> and, um, and then he explained it one day and um, it's a Swabian expression. A uh, Swabian, Bavarian. Okay. Um, and the idea is very simple. If you're the farmer and it's your pig, you're gonna, you're gonna see things that no one else will see. So just by you being there and watching it, you will kind of, you will ensure its growth, mm. you know. Um, and he'd always equate it to if you were at a restaurant and the owner was there, the food would always be better. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, over the years, like I, I just realized that it literally applied to everything. And these times when, you know, even with Bell Labs, you'd kind of assume that there were these experts that, sure. oh, well, they would know it, so I'll step out. And it wasn't, again, it wasn't about ego or being right, but it was that thing of like, if it's your vision, if it's your pig, you have to oversee every step because yeah. you'll just see things that other people just won't because it's not their pig. Yeah. Um, so I, the thing that's kind of funny is that quote has been taken out of context in the sense of like it's been the main quote on a page and I look like I'm crazy, you know. 
And, um, and then it got to the point where I couldn't even, go- like I was trying to Google it to see if it existed and you can't find it. So then I That's called my nice. dad and I was like, is this actually a real quote? And he was like, yeah, but they never translated it from the original language. So yeah, it's kind of funny, but that one. I mean, that's, that's interesting because I think, you know, most musicians, probably creatives in general, miss that point mm. that, you know, typically they want to leave things to the manager or the label or the agent or, you know, the stylist or whoever. Yeah. And then often they end up unhappy with the results. One is, you know, it comes down to if you don't care, like if, if actually you are happy just to be told what to wear or like, sure. then, then it's fine. Then actually, you know, you don't need to be the farmer in that scenario. But I think when, when, the, when the vision is so acutely yours, and that could be anything, it doesn't have to be applied to this, it could literally be anything, then it's just really important you know and I think that it actually makes the difference between things being good and being truly great Mm. it's just those little details that would get missed if you were out the room you know or off the call sure who would you be most excited to learn as a fan of your work Can they can they be dead, <laughs> or should they be alive? It's your story. Um, I feel like I would need to have two because one would be music and the other one would be. Oh, that's very difficult. You can have two. Okay, I would. I would have to say, Elliot Smith, just because I think on a music integrity level there aren't music many musicians like him and I think on a larger scale um, Jim Henson would be amazing what's your favorite city to travel to I'm currently in it (laughs) we love it here yeah what's the last great book you read Um, his Dark Materials by Philip Pullman. I don't know if you come across it. It's like an so a bit of a um, said, said like a bookseller's daughter. Well, it's funny because I, you know, my degree was in English literature. Um, I managed to read like no books, and I wanted to do my dissertation on Leonard Cohen, um, and the department said it's, he's irrelevant if you do it you won't pass and we can't give you a supervisor um, and it was so frustrating because it was because I, I hate reading I'm, if I'm gonna if it's between sitting down and reading I would want to be writing I, I mm. always felt like if it was one of the two I would ha- I'd write um, and so I, I was so annoyed because I'd found this subject that I was really excited about which was looking at how Leonard Cohen like kind of straddled like truly being a poet with also being a songwriter and how he would write these songs that were so poetic they could be studied as poems but he'd write these poems that were so lyrical that they would jump off the page 
Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. Yeah, and I ignored everything that they said and did it on my own without like any help. And um, not that you need help, but it was kind of weird them all saying that this would fail. And it ended up getting the top mark in the year, and it was published online, and a and a copy ended up on Cohen's desk. So mm. you read it, and that was actually what began the whole conversation, which then led to the conversation about the the deck mm-hmm. um, the album deck and we were talking about if, if I could maybe open for him or, you know various ideas to collaborate yeah. but it, that again was such a lesson in the difference between doing something because you love it and it will potentially connect you with so many things beyond the next kind of goal or just doing something to like get over that one hurdle sure. you know you have to come back and tell us how you get an English literature degree without reading. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, what movie have you seen the most in your life? I, th- I reckon it's between The Princess Bride okay. and, and Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Those are good movies to spend your time yeah. on. Who's your favorite DJ? Uh, so there was a great DJ um, called DJ Derek who was like this he was like one of the oldest DJs okay. <laughs> in the world and, um, and he opened for me for this gig in London and he just used to play like cassette tapes uh-huh. and they were just <laughs> they were just pla- a lot of reggae uh-huh. but yeah he, he, I'd say DJ Derek if he's still alive. I've not heard of him. That's that's cool. I love learning about DJs. Yeah. That's amazing. Cassette tapes. Yeah. So cool. Thank you for doing this. Oh, pleasure. This is so much fun. Real talking. pleasure. Um, we'll follow you. Where, where should people follow you? Where should people follow me? Um, I guess everywhere. Is there online. one channel that you pay the most attention to? No, I'm, pre- I'm pretty good. You know, between... Instagram and Twitter and um, so and everything is BT Wolf you know I'm, I'm lucky to have a weird name so sure. nice if, if we come back let's promote the next project yeah not that you need my help oh no Joseph has been super fun yo that was BT Wolf on Rebel Radio I hope you enjoyed it I know I did make sure you hit us on Twitter Facebook with a comment, a review on iTunes. Everything is at Rebel Radio Net. You can find videos from the show on our YouTube channel at Rebel Radio Net. And most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace. <laughs>